From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, you've heard it a million times. If you're an investor, you need to diversify. But what exactly does that mean? Can you just buy the entire S&P 500 and maybe some treasuries and call it a day? Or should you really put a little bit more work into it than that? We'll get into that and other issues uh, with the chief investment officer of a firm that oversees about $1 trillion under management or administration. But first, Charlie Pellet, tell us who this week's mystery co-host is. This week's mystery co-host is Christine Aquino. Christine's the European team leader for Bloomberg's bonds and foreign exchange coverage. She also pleads guilty to being, in her words, a crazy cat lady. How much does she love cats, you ask? She once flew her kitty in business class from Singapore to Paris, and then took the feline on a six-hour cab ride from Paris to London. Okay, Christine, you know, this is a very serious buttoned-up podcast here, and I wanted to get right to the markets chat, but I first I need to hear this cat story that Char- Charlie just told us about. <laughs> Listen, um, my cat is basically my child, and there was no way that she was going to come or she wasn't going to come with me when I was going to move from Singapore to London. And of course, if I was traveling business class, then she had to travel business class too, obviously. So yeah, um, it was a bit of a journey. Uh, she she rode in her fancy cat carrier uh, in the business class um, cabin on my footrest in the plane. She was actually a, a, a trooper because she only meowed once. And that was when we were landing. Um, But the entire time she was quiet as a mouse. Um, We had no accidents and it was a fairly uneventful flight. Uh, But then, yeah, we had to take the the six hour uh, taxi ride from Paris to London. So that was another leg of the journey. But she made it. We we all made it in one piece. No one was uh, too grumpy at the end of it. Charlie had some questions about uh, how much a cab ride from Paris to London cost and, and why you didn't take the train. I suspect a corporate card was involved. So you, you can plead the fifth if, if you want to, on that issue. <laughs> let me let me just say that it probably ate up half of my moving allowance, uh, that cab ride alone. <laughs> that sounds about right. That sounds about right. Well, let's get to that markets chat and bring in our guest. Christine, I'm going to warn you, um, like me, he's a Philly guy. So if we lapse into some strange dialect that you don't understand and start talking about water ice and hoagies, just just go with it, okay? I'll try my best to decipher, yes. You try, try your best. Anyway, he is the chief investment officer for SEI Investments in the suburbs of Philadelphia. His name is Jim Smigel. Jim, welcome to the show. 
Uh, thanks, Mike. Happy to uh, happy to be here. Hey, Jim, I wanted to start uh, talking first of all about. Um, yeah, I was looking up some of the funds that you're part of the the management committee on. Um, and one really popped out at me just because it's it's really been on a, a great streak the last few years. Uh, I'm talking about the SEI Institutional Managed Trust Dynamic Asset Allocation Fund, beaten something like 90 some percent of its peers over the last one, three, five years, I think it is. Um, so I want to just kind of start talking about that. What's the secret sauce for that fund? What are you doing right that sort of other funds in that category aren't doing as well? Have to give me a moment to get my thoughts together. I'm still reeling from the from the cat story. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I did. It's a shocking tale. I don't, I don't know who signs the expense reports at Bloomberg, but <laughs> it was all above board. Let me assure you. <laughs> um, no, so it is a. It's an interesting fund. It is a unique fund. I'm glad. I'm glad we're we're able to talk about it. it you know, we're trying to. We were trying to solve uh, you know a pretty basic problem, which is. We wanted to, to diversify. You talked about diversification in your opening. We wanted to diversify the active risks uh, that our clients were, were getting in their portfolio. So not necessarily the portfolio that may have you know, stocks and bonds, maybe some alts, maybe a little commodity exposure, but really how they're producing excess returns. Um, we, we have a tactical asset allocation program and the struggle with bringing uh, 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 TAA or into a client's portfolio is, what do you fund it with? What's the vehicle? How do you how do you get it in there? Uh, and that's where the DAA fund was kind of born. Uh, so what makes it so unique is that it does have an underlying beta to it. It is essentially an S&P 500 index fund. Uh, but instead of adding value by picking Microsoft versus Apple, we add value by porting our macro themes and, and macro ideas on top of the S&P. So from a client perspective, it, it makes it pretty easy. You don't have to think about your funding source, right? You, Everybody has S&P exposure. Everybody tends to have it in size. So you can just take out part of your S&P funds. Uh, maybe it's an ETF, maybe it's an index fund, and you can replace it with the DAA fund. And your underlying strategic asset allocation has not changed at all. The only thing that's changed is you're now diversifying a bit of your active exposures. And how you size it can, you know, you, you can adjust how much uh, you want to change those active exposures. You can take on a, a lot. You can take on a little bit. So we found it to be a pretty useful implementation idea for the end client. And, and you know, we've been on a good run for sure. We've had a good couple of years. Uh, but clients seem to not just to be happy, obviously, with our performance, but also just with how the fund is set up. It gives them a little flexibility and kind of changing their portfolios around. So, yeah, tell me, Jim, I mean, I know that you know, diversification, that's the, the the main keyword here, right? But I think these days, um, investors are facing so many risks and variables um, in, in markets. And obviously, one of them, the hot topic these days seems to be inflation. And I know that you have some pretty recent views around it. And I believe you're actually in a camp that um, things that inflation pressures are um, less transitory than maybe central banks would imply. Is that right? Um, but, you know, they keep insisting that it's it's transitory. It's not going to last very long. You seem to think otherwise. Tell us, what are we missing here? Is there some place that we should be looking where these pressures are actually becoming a bit more entrenched than maybe central bankers would like to admit? Yeah, I think, you know, I think you're, you're right. I mean, broadly, our view is that uh, we're entering into a really unique environment, given the stimulus and the type of stimulus, notably the level of fiscal stimulus that we've had, which is now coordinated with the monetary, which is which is relatively unusual. 
Uh, you know, we, we, we think this is a different enough environment where the precision, you know, that the that the Fed seems to you know have uh, around this notion of uh, how long these inflationary pressures are going to be with us. We're, we're just we're just taking the opposite side of the precision. Right. We don't have any grandiose model where we're looking at this and saying, well, you know, the Fed thinks that, you know, inflation is going to be a two quarter event. We think it's going to be a three quarter event. You know, we, I don't even know what transitory means. What What is, is that a three-year thing? Is that a four-year thing? So, uh, you know, our view is we're just kind of looking at how uh, the markets are pricing in inflation, which seems to be very, very subdued. You know, a little pop here, but then kind of a recovery from there. And we're just going to take the other side of that. We think there's enough stimulus in place, both on the monetary side and on the fiscal side, uh, yeah, that we think this can can surprise a lot of people. And we're also look, I mean, behaviorally, we're getting through a period of time where inflation, you know, was was tarred and feathered. I mean, it was dead. I mean, it was never coming back. Um, you know, the client portfolios, the classic 60-40, interestingly enough, it, it, there is an inflation bet in a 60-40 portfolio. It just happens to be on deflation. Right. So. Uh, you know, our view is that adding some inflation exposure to a client's portfolio, even in general, is probably a good idea just to get you back to normal. But in this environment that we find ourselves in today, you know, we're happy we're happy to take the side uh, of an overshoot. We're happy to take the side that the Fed doesn't have, you know, kind of the, the precision and execution that maybe the market is giving them kind of credit for. So what does that mean, Jim, from sort of an allocation standpoint to take the other side of that that bet on inflation? Is it, you know, load up more on tips? Is it find the equities that are most, uh, you know, likely to benefit from inflation? A combo of both, I imagine. How, how would we sort of wrap our heads around how to how to execute on what you're talking about? Sure. Well, from a strategic perspective, let's just start there for a moment. And, and I think it, all investors should take a look at their portfolio and see, do they really have any inflation sensitive uh, assets in their portfolio. And if they don't, a lot of the things that you mentioned, we think are worth looking at. Add some tips to your portfolio, add some strategic commodity exposure uh, to, to your book. Uh, but from a tactical perspective, it really is a bit of an all of the above implementation from, from our perspective. So we are directionally overweight commodities relative to what we would consider to be a model portfolio right now. In the Dynamic Asset Allocation Fund, that's our largest exposure. It's uh, directionally long, broad commodities. We also have what we would call some value equity exposure. And that takes a few forms, right? So uh, a very easy way to get value equity exposure is actually to look outside the United States. So indices in the UK, indices in Japan, even indices in Europe, the sectors that make up uh, those stock markets uh, tend to be more value oriented. You're not going to see the dominating big tech names that you'll see in the United States. In the United States, outside of, of outright investing in something like a value index or outright investing in a smart beta, value factor, you could even uh, take strides like we're doing in, in the DAA fund, which is an equal weight S&P, right? So once you get rid of the high concentration in the mega tech, all of a sudden you're looking and feeling a lot more like value, which has these kind of reflationary characteristics to it. And we would expect to benefit from that. You know, outside of that, uh, you know, short bonds is not something we necessarily recommend. We happen to be tactically short on the long end of the curve right now. Uh, that's not something that we would recommend on a strategic basis. Fixed income still plays a role in your portfolio. Uh, but we think, you know, the pressure is going to be there. Uh, if, if we're if we're of the of the view that inflation is going to surprise somewhat to the upside, uh, you know, despite the, you know, the Fed's uh, proclamations, 
um, we want to be a little bit short uh, here as a, uh, also as a tactical play. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So, Jim, I want to hone in on your point on commodities specifically, because I just finished reading The World for Sale, which is a terrific book by our colleagues Javier Blas and Jack Farchi. It's all about the history of how commodity trading houses came to be from their inception to the modern day trading house. And I got to tell you, that is not a market for the faint hearted. It's not something that your regular mom and pop investor can just very easily dive into to without uh, uh, suffering some uh, growing pain. So would you have any sort of advice for the novice investor who may want to dip their toes into the commodity space? How would they how would you advise they get started in that? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a great point. It's a, it's a that, that sounds like a book I should probably pick up and put on the summer reading list. Um, but it's exactly right. I mean, commodities are this is a trading oriented asset class, right? I mean, then that's you know, that's, you know, everyone's, you know, the, you know, if you're, uh, if you're as old as, as I am and maybe as old as Michael, you remember like trading, trading spaces and you're in the commodity pits and um, Christina probably has no idea what we're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about, but These go are, on. Uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking of a spinoff podcast that's just old man reference, movie <laughs> references, Jim, for, for, for people like Christine, so they know what we're talking about when we get together. You know, maybe maybe follow up with a link for Christine so you can catch up. On yeah. <laughs> Eddie Murphy, you got you got to watch that one, Christine. It's a classic, and and set in Philadelphia, by the way. And set in Philadelphia, that's exactly right. Um, so so you know you're right. Commodities are not you know it it is uh, much much more difficult. The implementation from a portfolio perspective is not going to be uh, obviously hard commodities. You're going to be doing this is all futures contract based, which also makes it a little bit more difficult because we're talking about derivatives and we have to talk about things like, you know, the, the roll down and, and whether we're in contango or backwardation. But there are, thankfully, just given how the market has evolved, very, very easy ways to get broad based commodity exposure. Just look in the ETF space. There's uh, commodity uh, ETFs that are broad based. They're based on the BCOM index. Which is the more diversified as opposed to the uh, to the Goldman index um, doesn't have as much isn't as heavy into energy crosses over all of the different sectors into base metals and precious and ags and of course in, into the energy uh, components as as well so really easy they're relatively they're relatively cheap you don't have to and, and many of them are even uh, K one free so for those investors that hear futures and ETFs in the same sentence and immediately are like I don't want to deal with K one for my accountant going to charge me more for it. Plenty of ways around that in commodity space. So, you know, it has become a relatively easy addition uh, to uh, client portfolios just by looking in ETF space. 
I want to go back to what you said earlier about 60-40. It's interesting that you mentioned that because it's such a divisive sort of topic these days. We have a number of prominent people calling the death of this uh, investment approach, right? But um, are you still a believer in that? And how do you think that kind of profile has changed when we're in an environment where um, 10-year treasuries are yielding, what, 1.5%? Those in Europe are barely above zero. Um, and there, there's just not a lot of yield to go uh, when when you're talking about your traditional um, bond destinations, you know. So how how what does that look like for you these days? You know, the 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 sixty forty split. Like where where could we be looking beyond the traditional um, fixed income markets for a bit more yield than you know what we're getting now? That's a, you know, it's a, it's a great question. It's one we get a lot. Um, you know, we, we've actually been of the mind that the, the 60-40 is, you know, quite frankly, never really been a great diversified portfolio. I mean, you've, you know, you've had many folks on on this podcast in the past that would probably tell you the, the similar story. But a 60-40 portfolio is is essentially a diluted equity portfolio, right? The vol differential between your equity investments and your fixed income investments are such that the bonds don't really matter all that much, right? Your your 60% of your capital is invested in equities, but 95% of your risk uh, is in equity. So it's not a terribly diversified portfolio. So we've always been, we always push our clients in the direction of thinking about diversification, even outside of where we are today, which is, you know, low yields and people actually, you know, catching this idea that inflation might might be a problem and what might that do uh, with yields. But to answer your question directly, I mean, it is you know, from a strategic perspective, you do want to think about diversification through multiple lenses, right? So we've already talked about one of those lenses, which is risk. So a 60-40 portfolio from a risk perspective isn't going to look terribly diversified. We already talked about another one of those lenses, which is, well, how does it relate to the macro environment, like growth and inflation? We know that you know rising above trend growth, which we think is probably the situation we're in in the near term here, that's going to benefit equities. That's going to benefit things like credit, which are highly correlated to equities. But rising inflation and above trend inflation, you know, that probably is not going to benefit your your fixed income assets, uh, assuming that they're nominal bonds. And with equities, they have a love-hate relationship, right? When we're coming from a low base, like so when you move from deflation to inflation, inflation is hugely positive for equities. But when you move from somewhat trend inflation to above trend or more importantly, unexpected inflation, that's when that's when equities tend to roll over. So there's a lot of things that I think clients can do right away, you know, to make this their 60, 40 portfolio better. And we've, we've talked about them already. Tips. Replace some of your nominal bonds with tips. We do think that makes a lot of sense. There's the inherent adjustment to to CPI. It's. Regardless of what your view is, transitory or not transitory, uh, that's going to make your portfolio from a strategic perspective more robust. We would also suggest things like gold or, or uh, in a broader commodity complex, a broader commodity exposure. Again, it's going to make your portfolio more robust because the characteristics of broad-based commodities will differ at certain times from equities and uh, from uh, nominal bonds. So, you know, what we wouldn't suggest is to go from one portfolio, 60-40, which we view as not, not necessarily being diversified, to something like, you know, 80 equity and even less fixed income, which is even less diversified. Don't abandon all semblance of interest rate sensitivity, 
Because look, we're all in the prediction business and that's a really difficult business to be in. And no one has a crystal ball. And can I come up with a few different scenarios where rates stay exactly where they are or rates fall from here or rates rise, but in a very calm and measured way, uh, which would actually benefit uh, in some ways your nominal bonds in your portfolio? I, I can come up with those and we just and we just don't know. So diversification isn't about from your strategic portfolio. You know, it's not about making short term bets. It's, it's looking over the long term and deciding how can I make this the most robust portfolio for any outcome that may come down the pike. Yeah, Jim, when it comes to 60-40, I think all our listeners are, are 60% GameStop, 40% Dogecoin. Smart. That's, that's, that's the way to go these days. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So Jim, before you were uh, named CIO uh, of SEI, you were CIO of non-traditional strategies. And uh, I was laughing about that concept earlier, thinking like, boy, we've seen some non-traditional strategies this year. You got Dave Portnoy picking letters out of a Scrabble bag to to figure out what stock tickers he wants to to buy and the whole Reddit phenomenon. And don't worry, I know know that's not what you're talking about, but I wanted to sort of get your sense of the alternative asset classes now, especially as they fit into that notion of of diversification, because I was watching some of the videos on the SCI website. Uh, You've had some really interesting chats uh, with a colleague there, and you brought up some stuff that I think not a lot of people think about, uh, especially home country bias. And, you know, there's a, a bias towards these mega caps that are dominating the market today. So if you buy an S&P 500 fund these days, you know, as a U.S. investor, you, A, you're, you've got that home country bias and you're really loading up on these mega cap, uh, you know, Amazons and Apples of the world. So how do the alts fit into that space and, and what alts um, sort of look attractive these days to you? You know, you mentioned commodities obviously being sort of a, a real asset type of way to diversify. What else is sort of, you know, catching your interest as a way to, to get away from some of these uh, inherent biases that a, a S&P 500 fund holder might have? Sure. And I, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great question because it, it's even a bit of a misnomer, you know, when people talk about, well, I'm allocated to equities, fixed income and alts. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. What, what does alts even mean? I mean, that's like saying I'm allocated to equities, fixed income and mutual funds. It it. it it doesn't. It doesn't tell me anything. You, you've just described a wrapper. You haven't described uh, anything that I can actually, you know, sink my teeth into as it relates to the exposures from a return perspective or a risk perspective that you're bringing to your portfolio. So, uh, obviously, like everything that we do, we're trying to our our alternative uh, book of business is trying to be as diversifying uh, as we can. So, yes, that's going to be more relative value trading. So long shorts, which allow us to kind of lower the correlation profile. So even if we're utilizing, 
you know, what are even just basic U.S. equity exposure, we can change that correlation profile by making sure that it's very low net beta uh, and uh, long short. So it's you're 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 exploiting the differences between two sectors or two names or or uh, two countries, whatever the case may be. Uh, and that gives you that kind of diversifying profile. Right now, we really like global macro. Probably not surprising. This has been a part of the alternative universe that is that has been very unloved um, because it's been somewhat challenged. Um, you know, this is uh, uh, can be somewhat of a long volatility uh, uh, strategy as well. Typically, deals a lot in uh, futures, which gives it commodities and rates and inflation uh, as kind of its kind of its base. It's, little bit a little bit of momentum attached to that as well but we tend to de-emphasize that a little bit but so this kind of notion of global macro we think fits very very nicely into a broader uh, portfolio which tends to be dominated as i mentioned with equity risk already uh, and even credit on the fixed income side uh, which is of course highly correlated with with the equity side of the business so uh, you're seeing in our book of business you're seeing a little bit more of an emphasis right now on the global macro side of things uh given where we are in the cycle, but also because of its diversification properties. All right, Chip, two quick questions um, before we get to the crazy things. Um, first one is, I know at SEI, you guys were kind of early to the notion of low volatility stocks. Um, and then last year, we had one of these episodes where they kind of were in the wrong place at the right time, or, or wrong place at the wrong time, I guess you could call it. You know, a lot of that cohort happened to be names that uh, really got hurt by the, the COVID lockdowns. Now, on the other side of it, um, a lot of low volatility stocks tend to be high dividend payers, high yielding stocks, which might not perform as well in a rising interest rate environment if you're right about the inflation being, you know, uh, hot for a couple of years now. So is it one of those strategies that you're kind of would would. Uh, put on the bench for a while on the sidelines um, in times like this. And the second question is, I, I asked this of all Philadelphia people, but it's, it's uh, Geno's or pe- Geno's or Pat's. I will. Right, well, the, the second question is the easier one and that's Geno's. Geno's. Okay. We'll start there. All right. Okay. You know, if we want to get tactical, it would be Jim's, but Jim's. Okay. If I only have the binary choice, we'll, we'll go with, we'll, I'll, I'll, we'll I'll, go with this Gino's. is one of those parts where Christine's lost here, but <laughs> these are the, the famous cheesesteak uh, restaurants. Of Philadelphia. Yes, I guessed. Yeah. I was going to ask, is there a way to get that over here in London? Because we're desperate for any kind of Philly cheesesteak offering here. I'll, I'll see what I can do. I'll, I'll see what I can do. Personally, I'm a, I'm a shorter line guy, which whoever's got the shorter line. Bloomberg spares no expense to, I mean, if you can get a cat. I, <laughs> I'm sure you can get a Philly cheesesteak. I mean, you can't tell me you can't get a cheesesteak over there. I mean, don't disappoint, <laughs> don't disappoint me, people. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, low, low vol, great. I mean, great question, and you're exactly right. I mean, wow, what a uh, aligning of stars in the wrong direction for low vol. So you know, we have this, you know, we have this big market dip, and what does well, you know, is stay at home stock. So yes, you know, Peloton, not a low vol stock. So, uh, you know, it, it is it has taken some time really to educate investors about, well, wait a minute, you know, the, the appeal, the biggest appeal of the strategy is is just that, is that is this going to rescue me and, and blunt some, I mean, not all, but some of the drawdown. Uh, and certainly in, in COVID times, that is that is not going to be the case, just how unusual that drawdown was and what benefited from it. Uh, you, I think you're, you're, you're also right. These do tend to be. Uh, interest rates, more interest rate sensitive stocks. I mean, sometimes when we'll model this exposure, it'll be 
kind of an 80-20, you know, it's an 80% equity exposure, kind of a 20% kind of fixed income exposure. Um, but, you know, so we, we still think it plays a role in a, in a client's portfolio uh, because we still remain confident in its ability to, to dampen uh, to dampen drawdown. So it, it may have a bit more of a headwind. And remember what the overarching purpose is of kind of a low vol equity strategy, which is, you know, you are taking a lower risk position, but your lower risk position isn't going to translate into that exact same lower return position. So you're going to outperform the market beta that you're taking. And we still believe that to be the case. So in years past, you know, you've taken a 0.8 beta and you've you've basically outperformed uh, the index, which is highly, highly unusual. We don't expect that to be happening uh, going forward, but we still think that the anomaly remains uh, and that a position in low vol equities will outperform uh, the beta that you're taking um, uh, by investing in, in that sector. So it's not, it's not something that, you know, unless you are an ultra conservative investor, we, we're not recommending 100% allocation to low vol equities. Uh, but in, in many cases, even even very aggressive investors, I mean, think about it from this perspective. We talked about a 60-40 being 95% of its risk in equities. Even a very aggressive investor, having some low vol is actually a really good way of increasing your interest rate sensitivity and therefore diversifying your portfolio and reducing your reliance on equity beta. So we think it does have a, it's definitely a tool. It should be a tool in uh, the investors, uh, you know, tool shed. And it can, it can really apply to all different kinds of investors, not just what you typically think about it when you think about low vol, which is, oh, this is really conservative. These are folks that are focused on income. Uh, it can also play a nice role for very aggressive investors, kind of dampen uh, the overall uh, beta in their portfolio and further diversify um, their exposures. Yeah, Christine, I think that was code language for old old guys like me. They're those uh, those those conservative uh, <gasps> scared to death. So I, I in guess Mike's another... portfolio, as opposed to <laughs> Christine's portfolio, right, right. Two different two different uh, risk appetites, but the same cheesesteak appetite. I'll say, Christine, we will work on get, getting you one uh, one of these days. Please, I don't know how how well it'll travel. It might not travel as well as your cat, but but I'll, I'll do my best. If you fly it um, in, in business class, it has a better chance of surviving. All right. All right. If I can get this on the expense account, I, I'll be a legend, I think, uh, <laughs> an all time legend of, of the of the game. But with that said, I think that's our perfect segue to uh, Jim. We have a tradition here we call the craziest thing we saw in markets this week. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. And it's it's been a bull market for crazy things the last couple of years, I, I think. So uh, I'm excited to hear what you, you guys all have. Christine, let's start with you. What's the craziest thing you saw this week? Well, the craziest thing that I saw this week was the sale in non-fungible token form of the original World Wide Web source code for over $5 million. And frankly, I'm surprised it took Sir Tim Berners-Lee this long to capitalize on this because, of course, he probably didn't realize just the astounding impact of his invention, right? 32 years ago um, now when, when he essentially created a World Wide Web. And I don't think he's really ever kind of profited much from that creation. And so I think over $5 million, that's probably a fair price. It's probably actually cheap. Uh, cheap I, yeah, price to be paying I, for this. Yeah, I, I was gonna. Every other single NFT I've ever heard about seemed about one hundred percent overpriced, but 
for the entire code of the web. Yeah, maybe that's fair. I don't yeah, know. yeah, I kind of agree. I mean, there's some NFT artists that were sold some things for sixty million dollars. I mean, original source code of the worldwide. Web, yeah, that seems that's a that's that's cheap right there. That's a bargain. That that's a downright steal. That's in the value cohort of of uh, <laughs> NFTs right there. I think for sure. Once the NFT world rotates into value, that thing's going to be. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> How about you, Jim? What's the craziest thing you saw? So, so here's here's my contribution, and so again, not to pick on uh, Christine too much, but this might not resonate with her. I don't know how I don't know how your generation buys cars. You know, maybe you guys just buy it online and get it delivered. But Michael and myself, when we buy a new car. Uh, you enjoy the process, right? And part of the process is the haggle. You go in, <laughs> you sit down, you talk to the sales guy. He goes and has to go talk to his manager and he just goes and, you know, takes a drink. Then, you, then you have to pretend to leave. At yeah, one exactly. Point. He gets a drink of water or something yeah, and yeah, yeah. goes to the bathroom and comes back. <laughs> so J.D. Power comes out this week and uh, the here's the number. So the number of new cars that are selling at or above their uh, uh, MSRP prior to the crisis was a third. And I was surprised. I thought that was even a bit high. So 33% of the cars prior to COVID uh, actually would sell above their MSRP or at their MSRP. Today, 75% of new cars. So you can't even enjoy kind of going (laughs) into to to a showroom and haggling over new cars. So the crazy thing that is going up apparently is all new car prices. You're you're, you're bidding them like they're uh, they're they're shore houses for for goodness sake. What, what what's, go, what's what's going on out there? It's crazy. That is pretty. That's unbelievable. I hadn't seen that. That's a good one though. Wow, wow. That's why uh, I don't know. I'm I'm happy to walk to the train till till that all uh, works its way through. I got a daughter who's dying for a new car. Just got her license too. But I, th- now I'm gonna. Explain now. I have more ammunition to explain to her why that's not going to be happening in this. Uh, all right, very. Both of these are very good. I, 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 you guys brought it. I've got a lot of competition this week, but uh, I, I'll give you mine. Mine's a story this week uh, from Bloomberg about uh, investors who are looking. A group of investors, a couple guys from private equity. One had a, a VC background too. They're looking to raise a hundred million dollars for a new fund uh, to buy antiques. And apparently the antique market, and I know I don't really know anything about this, but it's really been in the doldrums ever since the 2008 financial crisis. There's apparently some pieces that are selling for 120th of what they would sell for in 1998. So I guess in the, in the dot-com heyday, antiques were, were in a bull market too. So they're called the Tangible Assets Group. A uh, guy named Gary Sargent, is the, he's the antique dealer who's kind of in, in charge of it all. But then He's got uh, some private equity guys, one guy named John French and a guy named Tom, Tom Berglund. And this is, uh, uh, Jim, this is where I love it. The quote from the story uh, fits in well with uh, the inflation discussion we had. Uh, Tom Berglund said, as we move into a period of higher inflation and greater uncertainty, these alternative assets will be a great store of value and, a, and an inflation hedge. So they're going around buying $100 million worth of antiques. That's going to take a while, I think. Um, and, and one more thing for you, Jim, this is uh, one of my favorite parts of the story. Apparently one, there's a, uh, an old chest of drawers that's really tall and it's got a real fancy ornament on the top. I'd never heard about before, but it's, it's hot in the antique markets. It's called the, the Philadelphia High Boy. 
Nice. So I don't know. I don't know why. I got. I, I googled it. I can't find any explanation of what the Philadelphia High Boy is. It sounds like a guy you'd run into at the parking lot of Veterans Stadium. But uh. <laughs> there's, a few, there's a few of them. There's a whole section of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> the 700 level. The old That's 700 exactly level. right. The yellow seats. <laughs> So, Christine, uh, that's the craziest thing I got. But I, I it, one of these rare weeks where I think I come in third place. I think you guys both beat me. I'm, I'll, I'm happy to take the bronze. It was stiff competition, uh, and I appreciate you guys bringing your A game with your crazy things. And really, for for all your time this week, fascinating conversation, Jim. Uh, great to meet you. Great to talk to you. I hope we can do it again. That would be great. I appreciate it. Thanks for all Excellent. the time today. And Christine, well, I'll be talking to you soon. I'm sure. Uh, and uh, Christine, before we leave. What's the scene in London right now? I always like to catch up on London. I've been worried about London ever since I heard the pubs were closed. I, I, I was just worried about everyone's mental mental health. The pubs are back open and, and everyone's happy again in London. Well, it's what we call Thirsty Thursday today. And so I had just come back uh, from the uh, the Bloomberg office in London is surrounded by pubs and restaurants. And uh, it's basically like lockdown never happened. Everyone... The streets are full of people enjoying their pints, and some of them are probably going to be stumbling home tonight, but it's all good. <laughs> and also, England won the uh, their match against oh, Germany yeah, earlier yeah, this yeah. week, so there's a lot to celebrate in the city of London. We're, we're also enjoying a rare sunny day, so... Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, hungover people on Friday morning. <laughs> all right, all right. That's, uh, well, listen, uh, I... that's soccer, uh, Mike. Just so, uh, just the, uh, just uh, <laughs> in case it wasn't clear. Yes, it's that <laughs> soccer game. Oh yeah, I, I, I believe me. I would never imagine England winning a fo- an actual football game. <laughs> Although it is gaining popularity over there, from what I understand, those NFL and London games are really. The, uh... Oh, yeah. The Jacksonville Jaguars are the unofficial London team because they are the only NFL team that has had a London game ever since its uh, inception many years ago now. Yeah, every, every year they're there, I think. Right. I think there's some connection, right? The owner's a, a, a British football guy or something. I don't know. You Google yeah. that. I, I'm probably getting that wrong. Jacksonville, that. London. I mean, it's really the same. Right, right, right. You're all Florida, Florida men. Christine, I'm not going to keep you anymore. I'm sure you're thirsty. Get out there and enjoy the rest of that beautiful night. And Jim, thanks again. Uh, And that's all the time we have. Thanks, folks. Pleasure. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Christina Kino is at ChrisAQ News. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pelt of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? 
I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.